This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Hitachi, realizing a sustainable society by improving social, environmental, and economic value for customers and stakeholders. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Oregon Governor Kate Brown and IHS Market Vice Chair Daniel Jurgen join the Post to discuss the goal to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050 and assess the path forward to 100% clean energy in less than 30 years. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. This morning, we're going to be talking about the path to net zero, the lofty goal of balancing the greenhouse gases we produce with those taken out of the atmosphere by 2050. More than 110 countries have signed on, but how do we get there? Today, we're going to start with one of the champions of that cause, Oregon Governor Kate Brown. A very warm welcome to Washington Post Live, Governor Brown. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to start by talking specifically about some of the executive orders you've signed in Oregon to push the state towards greater energy efficiency. Could you talk about a couple of the key issues you've taken on and how you're doing? Well, we've had a great partnership with the legislature, so we've been able to move forward both in terms of legislation and in terms of executive action. The executive order that I signed capped carbon emissions and will move us toward net zero. We've also had a great partnership with our legislature, um, but here's the harsh reality. Uh, the transportation sector is the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions in Oregon, and I'm assuming across the United States. And pollutants from diesel and gasoline engines pose immediate public health risks for our most vulnerable communities, our Black, our Indigenous, our Latino, Latina, Latinx, Asian, Pacific Islander, tribal and communities of color, and our rural communities. So we have to do everything we can uh, to tackle climate change. We had, as you saw from the clip, a horrific wildfire season last year. Uh, we had the worst wildfire season that we've ever had. We lost over 4,000 homes during uh, the wildfires. And this year, unfortunately, we are facing one of the worst droughts that we have had with huge impacts on agriculture and on our tribes in Southern Oregon. So it's critically important that we move forward. That's why I signed an executive order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in Oregon by 45% of 1990 levels by 2035 and 80% by 2050. Obviously transportation is a critical part of that plan. And then most recently passed legislation um, that my administration sponsored to expand access to electric vehicles and charging infrastructure, particularly for uh, families that are low income, our communities of color and our rural communities. So all of these actions are critically important. So we'll talk in a little bit about, about the timber industry and that role that it plays as well in climate change. But first, I'd like to ask you about um, incentives you're putting behind electric vehicles, because clearly if transportation is playing such a significant role, they're an important uh, move for you. So the legislation I most recently signed, um, House Bill 2165, it's a rebate program, 
and we strengthened our current rebate program to better serve our BIPOC, rural, and low-income communities. And we also created an investment fund through Oregon's electric utilities and EV infrastructure with half of the investment targeted to our historically underserved communities, our BIPOC, rural, and low-income communities. Thank you. And, and what about charging stations? I gather you've put a number of charging stations along some of the major corridors for commercial vehicles. How do they fit into this plan? Well, just I, I just have to brag for a minute about Oregon. Um, because of the work my administration has done and because Oregonians want to lead on progressive public policy tackling the environment, we now have uh, over 34,000 EVs registered in Oregon and 1,900 public chargers. We rank fourth in the nation for EVs per capita. In terms of the commercial side, honestly, this is uh, all developed through a, an incredibly strong public-private partnership. And Oregon is home to the first public commercial vehicle fast charging station on the I-5 corridor. Um, and this was made possible by a partnership between Daimler Trucks and Portland General Electric. And it is equipped with eight vehicle charging stations that be, can be used by electric semi-trucks, buses, and box vans. And it's really the first step uh, to electrify the 1,300 miles of the I-5 corridor along the West Coast. So I'm really excited about it. Um, this is historic. Um, it is long overdue, and I'm really pleased to see the West moving in this direction. So buses are part of this, but are you doing enough, you feel, or do you have uh, intentions to get people actually out of private cars, out of private vehicles, and onto public transportation? Well, uh, yes, uh, Oregon has uh, led in this effort over the last couple of decades. Obviously, uh, uh, the city of Portland is one of the most bike-friendly uh, cities in the entire nation. Uh, we have a very strong uh, bus system. And uh, in addition to that, with the leadership of uh, our uh, folks in the Portland area, we have a wonderful light rail system that serves uh, the metro area. And so we have a number of tools, but we're gonna need all of these tools including creating what I call healthy, sustainable communities to encourage folks to walk, to bicycle, uh, to uh, get on their scooters uh, and out of their cars. Thank you. So let's get to this tricky issue of the timber industry. Some environmentalists have been critical of your executive order, particularly the one this past year, saying it didn't go far enough to take on uh, the timber industry which is also a huge uh, source of emissions. Uh, why didn't you? What are you facing here? So um, we have a tension. It's always a balance here in terms of our natural resources industry. But I have to say right now, one of our other major challenges is making sure that we have adequate housing. Uh, I mentioned at the outset that we've lost over 4,000 homes during the wildfires of last year, and we were already struggling with inadequate supply. As a result of the 08-12 uh, recession, uh, we were down uh, roughly 150,000 houses. 
So obviously our natural resource industry, our timber uh, plays in a critically important part of that. And we're looking right now at how we can partner uh, to uh, create uh, a better supply uh, and get more houses built, essentially helping Oregon uh, build its own. So that's absolutely instrumental. We also have a really strong partnership with the timber industry around our cross-laminated uh, timber products, mass timber. Uh, these products are wonderful. It's a great way to create jobs in our rural timber-dependent communities and build houses or uh, commercial uh, facilities that are greener, frankly, and of course, uh, more earthquake resilient, uh, both two goals that we need to focus on here on the West Coast. So I have a couple of quick follow-ups on this. Isn't there a way to push forward on a compromise and potentially the kind of compromise with industry that could um, uh, be replicated in other states where coal or fracking are the major industries and governors are working hard to protect the interests of people in those jobs? Well, I, I think um, we can create some win-wins here uh, through a different, you know, a, a number of layers, including uh, carbon credits and carbon offsets. Um, and I do think our work around mass timber is uh, leading the way. We want to continue to make sure that we are creating healthier landscapes, and that's going to require investments in both people and uh, in equipment uh, to make sure that we are uh, thinning and harvesting and doing prescriptive burning so that our forest lands don't burn up. And um, honestly, I, I will just say that last year I brokered what I think is a historic agreement uh, between our timber industry and our environmental community that will uh, move towards uh, a science-based approach for timber management. So we're leading the way here. There's always more work to be done, but I think it's critically important that we move forward in a collective and collaborative way. Thank you. And you are the chair of the Western Governors Association. You've talked about the wildfires, but talk a little bit more about the specific challenges for the Pacific Northwest and California as we try to, to carve this path to net zero. So um, I, I, let me talk for a minute about the challenges facing the West uh, in terms of healthy landscapes, and then I'll move to uh, my work uh, as chair of the Western Governors Association. Um, in the West, particularly the West Coast, we have uh, millions of acres that over the, dec over the decades have been mismanaged. And I think it's critically important that we create stronger public-private partnerships uh, to develop healthier landscapes. And this involves resources and partnerships. And we've already started some of that in working with both the BLM and the US Forest Service. Uh, the director, uh, Vicki Christensen, is just the chief, has just done an extraordinary job in creating good neighbor agreements um, that require uh, a little skin in the game from the states and a little skin in the game from the feds um, that uh, allows us to hire folks uh, to thin, uh, to uh, remove uh, biomass from forest fuels. 
uh, forest fire, uh, the forest lands, and to um, frankly create healthier landscapes. And I know that Governor Newsom in California is focused on this and uh, Governor Inslee in Washington is as well. And it involves both federal lands, it involves uh, state lands and private lands as well. So we see this as a win-win-win uh, in Oregon because it creates jobs, it creates healthier landscape, provides product for our timber mills, and hopefully uh, will reduce or uh, 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 reduce uh, fires in the future. In terms of my work uh, as chair of the Western Governors Association, which I think I am only chair for a few more days now, my initiative uh, was to create the electric vehicles roadmap uh, to literally uh, partner around creating a West Coast electric highway um, and electrify the West. So that means working with governors of both uh, red states and blue states uh, to partner about how we create EV infrastructure so that someone can drive from Colorado to Nevada to Idaho and be able to do so in a uh, electric vehicle. And that means making sure that we have the charging stations available. This is gonna require public-private partnerships. And my initiative is working to build on the collaboratives that have already established and to expand those. Governor, you've been a huge supporter of President Biden's climate initiatives. Um, his proposed 22, 22 budget, I think, puts 36 billion into that. That's a 14 billion increase from before. Is there any limit to the amount of taxpayer money we should be pushing into these uh, transformative changes? Uh, well, I, I look back at what happened under the Eisenhower administration in terms of highways and what happened under uh, President Roosevelt and how we literally electrified this country. I am really excited about the Biden-Harris American Jobs Plan because these are investments that we need to truly move our country forward. And in Oregon, we've already laid the groundwork uh, so that we can move forward on electric infrastructure that literally will be possible as a result of the investments the Biden and Harris administration wants to make. Um, you know, we are back, uh, frankly, staring down an incredibly uh, challenging wildfire season again. And we know that action is needed now to address the climate crisis. In terms of resources, we have to tra transform our transportation infrastructure as we rebuild it, and we need the investments to make this happen. I'm watching governors across the nation, uh, both Republican and Democratic governors, invest in and work with their legislature to create uh, significant investments in transportation infrastructure. It's simply not enough. And under uh, President Biden's leadership, uh, Vice President uh, Harris's leadership, I am confident that we will get the additional resources we need uh, to make these transformative investments. So let's talk a little bit more about governors and senators in fossil fuel states. How do you talk to them when they have uh, industries that might be strongly disadvantaged by these changes? That's a really good question. I will tell you that from my perspective as a Democratic governor, Democratic governors see these investments around climate change 
as a moral imperative, uh, that it is something we must and have to do. Um, but my sense is, is that Republican governors, particularly as it relates to EV infrastructure, see this as an economic imperative. So it's um, a great place for us to work together. And it's a governors are very pragmatic. We have to GSD, we have to get stuff done. And both Republican and Democratic governors know that we have to move forward on a transportation infrastructure that meets the needs of the next century. Are there any Western Republican governors you could name? Uh, that I can name? Sure, I can name right. lots of them. Um, my sense is, I have to tell you, in developing this initiative through the Western Governors Association, we had uh, states that weren't part of the Western Governors Association that wanted to come in and work on this collaborative. So yes, I can. So you've also, you've talked a lot about moving ahead in agreement with industry, but you've had pushback from industry on your last executive order. Um, and across the country, not only on climate change, but also on the coronavirus, there have been allegations of uh, overreach from governors and pushback from legislators as well. Talk to me about that balance. Where Do you see um, in your own example that there could be uh, some justification for their feeling that you maybe overstepped your legal authority here? Well, the courts have been very clear uh, that I have the authority, at least at this point in time. But I, I would say that the business community that is challenging my uh, legal authority, these are the same businesses that funded the Republican walkout uh, to prevent the legislature from moving forward on our cap and trade legislation. So you can't have it both ways. Um, you can't both fund uh, a Republican walkout that prevents a quorum from happening and uh, the majorities from taking action, and then also say uh, the governor doesn't have the ability to have uh, to move forward in tackling these issues. So I'm confident uh, that we will continue to be successful in the courts, and um, businesses know that m the majority of Oregon businesses know that this is a uh, moral imperative, and it is also an economic imperative. Governor, I have probably time for just one last question, but I don't want to let you go without asking you about Portland and the violence that's racked that city with, I think, the 30th homicide. Um, talk to me about where things stand, what your next steps are, and ideas about police reform there. Let me be perfectly clear. Uh, violence and arson are absolutely unacceptable. We have worked uh, over the last year to ensure that folks that are exercising their free speech rights can do that both safely and peacefully uh, in this state. And I honestly am so proud of the thousands uh, of Oregonians across the state who have issued this long overdue clarion call for racial justice. I join in that effort. And I'm incredibly proud, frankly, of the work that the Oregon legislature is doing in uh, collaboration with my administration to tackle systemic racism, not only in our policing system, but in our criminal justice system. Uh, the legislature recently passed nine additional bills tackling police accountability. Uh, I have signed uh, six in special sessions last summer my Racial Justice Council 
is moving forward, uh, both in terms of legislation, uh, but in terms of changing culture uh, in our law enforcement training agency and in uh, our work there. So I'm really pleased about the work we are doing. Is it enough? Absolutely not. We will continue to eradicate racism the same way it was built brick by brick. And I'm absolutely committed to doing that uh, through my term as Oregon's governor. Governor Brown, thank you for, very much for sharing that commitment to a more peaceful future. Thank you so much. I'll be back soon with energy expert Dan Jurgen. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, my name is Hisham Abdesamad. I'm the CEO and chairman of Hitachi America Limited, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Hitachi's newly uh, appointed chief environmental officer, Alyssa Dormer. Hi, Ali, how are you? Hi, Hisham, I'm great. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. So uh, uh, great pleasure to, to discuss a little bit of an environment with you and climate change and, and what's happening around the world and what is Hitachi doing. Uh, so I guess the leading question would be, um, we saw Earth Day, we saw a lot of uh, 40, about 40 uh, global leaders got together and virtually sort of renewed their commitment towards uh, climate change and, and carbon emission reduction and, and obviously investments. Um, but we, we, do, we do tend to think that they focus a lot on the targets, but not necessarily how you get there. And there's not a whole lot of conversation around technologies and, 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 and innovation that's needed to, to, to help make that a reality. So if you can just talk a little bit about what are some of the key technologies that you feel are essential to, to realize these climate change commitments that we're all committed to? Okay, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, now, as you know, you know, we have the infrastructure, what we need to do is make that infrastructure smart. So technology, digital technologies like blockchain, like big data, like AI is very, very important to be deployed so that we've got green infrastructure times digital to uh, give us the infrastructure we need for the future. That's great. And um, and then if you talk about, if we think about the, infra the, the sort of the, some of the infrastructure gaps that we know about. So when you talk about mobility, and energy, they're by far the, the highest emitters in terms of carbon um, and the, sort of the biggest contributors to that. And we all know that those are probably the hardest ones to tackle because it does take a technology or infrastructure overhaul, not just an upgrade. Um, just talk a little bit about um, sort of what is Hitachi doing around this sort of infrastructure gap that we're seeing in, in, in some of these technologies as it relates to clim climate change. Just want to get your perspective okay. on that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's multiple areas that we're involved in. Firstly, you know, in mobility, uh, the most efficient uh, form of transport from a CO2 point of view is rail. So Itachi has 100 years experience in rail, but in the US in particular, uh, we're involved with uh, the upgrade of Washington Metro, uh, Bay Area Rapid Transit, and electric trains are super efficient. We're also working in terms of how do you eliminate the requirement for diesel trains? So battery technology, uh, hydrogen technology are all very important for the future. And battery technology really comes from, you know, the explosion in electric vehicles that we've seen that is continuing to accelerate. So we're involved uh, also with a very important project in the United Kingdom looking at how do you manage big fleets of EVs. 
so how do you manage those constraints around range, around the grid, around uh, energy? So that's very important uh, study. And also with our Hitachi ABB power grids, you know, we're bringing uh, energy from the wind farms, from the solar farms into people's houses, but the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So how do you manage that and optimize that? You need smart infrastructure. But, you know, in the U.S., Joe Biden's made some big commitments. Do you think the infrastructure in the U.S. is really up to the challenge? That's a great question. Well, uh, he did make some big commitments, and actually, it's it's been very well received because it's it's a major financial commitment to to what what we call build America better and, and invest in 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 climate change and, and invest in our future. Um, yeah. So if you think about it, the U.S. is is definitely uh, needs a lot of upgrades. Um, throughout the whole ecosystem. So when you're talking about, if you look at the investments, they're really airmarked in very specific areas that will make the biggest impact to achieve some of these targets. So railway, um, you know, $85 billion investment to, up, to, to upgrade the whole sort of rail infrastructure, $85 another $80 billion investment to upgrade the Amtrak. And people talk about what, why rail? Well, you know, as, as you know, railway, car, you know, trains, they, they emit 80% less emissions than than or carbon emissions than cars and you know this very well so that's a big part of the equation um also in the ev world 185 billion dollars in ev whether it's ev as vehicles or charging infrastructures which is a great start you know people wonder why is the government involved in this well you have to sort of start and kind of encourage the private sector to be a part of uh last year 1.1 billion metric uh billion uh metric uh units or i'm sorry metric tons of co2 units were burned, were contributed by cars and trucks. Um, so that's a big number. At 17% of all the carbon emissions in the United States were, were contributed. So EV has to be a big part of this. And, and of course, Hitachi's got a lot of capabilities, as you mentioned, and we have great, uh, great assets, energy, railway, a lot of digital technologies, and we're ready and we've learned a lot from what we're doing in Japan and Europe to, to really be a part of what America is doing. Um, so just to kind of wrap this up, it sounds like Hitachi is a climate innovator in a way and, and there is a renewed focus towards climate change but is is that core now to hitachi's business strategy or is this some is just a more of a kind of hey this is what we think we should do i just want to kind of for people who want to partner with hitachi to really understand their hitachi's commitment and perspective around around climate change yeah no Hisham, it's absolutely fundamental and core to what we are all about as a purpose of, as a company so we have domain knowledge in energy, domain knowledge in mobility, domain knowledge in industry, and we have an amazing digital capability. So we have the capability to work with governments, with cities and with companies to help decarbonize. So you can see behind me, we are a major sponsor of COP26, which is the climate change summit at the end of the year in the UK. And this is really to demonstrate to the world that you know, Itachi is committed. We are signed up to the race to zero. Uh, so we will be carbon neutral in our own operations by 2030 and then reduce through the whole value chain by 80% by 2050, working right across uh, our range of partners around the world. So it's an exciting time for us. Indeed it is. So Ali, thank you very much for your time with us today. And uh, this ends our segment and I'll hand it back to the Washington Post. Thanks, Hisham. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Hello again, and welcome back. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. My next guest is one of the most influential voices on energy and climate. 
the best-selling author and vice president of IHS Marketing, Daniel Jagan. Very warm welcome, Daniel Jagan. Just new hat, energy. Francis, I'm glad to be with you. I'm having a little trouble with the sound. I was heard well, you very well. On, well there, now it's better. Okay, good. Let us know if you oh, have any more problems. But we'll much better. Good. Good. Dan, I have a question first about this goal of reaching net zero by 2050 and how realistic you think that path to net zero is. Uh, Francis, I think you had a phrase in your previous interview where you talked about carving a path to net zero. And I think that's the point. It's carving it. It's a challenge. And there, uh, we heard a lot from the governor about what, what they're doing. But there are three big challenges that are there. One is scale and timing. The second are supply chains. And the third are the developing world. And I think we can explore each of those in, in terms of scale and timing. We're actually in the 312th world year of the global energy transition, which began in January of 1709 in England. Uh, but transitions in the past have been over a century or so, and now trying to do it in 28 years. And that would mean, for instance, building a the largest solar plants ever built so far every day from here until 2050. So it's understanding the scale of uh, transforming a $90 trillion world economy. So that's uh, the first issue. The second issue is around supply chains. We can go into more of that and then big questions about the developing world. So take us back to the most immediate steps we need to take now to achieve what you're describing as a sort of philosophical and physical metamorphosis, unlike any I can think of. What 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 needs to happen now? Well, I think, I mean, let's just take supply chains. Um, you know, you, to make one electric car battery, you have to move about 500,000 uh, pounds of earth to do that. The, the sun is free, the wind is free, but the materials are not. So you're talking about increasing lithium supply by 4,300%, cobalt and nickel by 2,500%. These are huge numbers. And it takes, at least right now, according to the International Energy Agency, about 16 years to open a new mine. So how do you do this all at the same time? I think that supply chain issue and then it gets more complicated because who con who controls the supply chains? A lot of it now passes through China in one way or another. And so you have the geopolitical issues with China, the United States, and the supply chain. And so I think that, you know, when you talk about the challenges on carving that path, that whole issue of supply chains is very important. I think the other question is the developing world. And uh, the U.S. is 15% of emissions, global emissions. Uh, I'm on the think tank, energy think tank of India, and they're talking, they're saying, well, we have a lot of poor people, people who cook with waste wood, which the World Health Organization says is the biggest environmental problem in the world. Uh, we want to get them energy. We need to get them natural gas. We need to get them propane for cooking. So that's going in a different direction. And I just did a conversation the other week with the vice president of Nigeria who was saying the same thing. We need to build natural gas pipelines. And does the, does the developed world have the right to tell us that we can't? So I think those are the three big challenges that need to be thought through in a very practical way to address getting to uh, net zero carbon. 
So you've been criticized by some environmentalists for having a lack of confidence in this 2050 goal. What's your message back to them? Um, simply that things are going to move more slowly? Um, do you see changes in either cash, technology, or is it all about permitting that could speed th these things up? I think directionally, there's no question where things are going. You heard from the governor, electric cars, they're 3% of the vehicles in the United States today. They'll go to, um, you know, be at least half our fleet by 2050. Average American car stays on the road for 12 years. So it's not to say we can't do these things, but just say how difficult they are. If you look at this recent International Energy Agency report that got so much attention, you know, a roadmap to net zero, its message is this is really difficult. So where are the answers? I think the big answers are in terms of technology. I think that another answer is in terms of carbon capture technology, which needs to be developed. Also, there's a lot of excitement now about hydrogen uh, replacing natural gas, but it takes you know seven or eight years. So I think it's the times are are, are the thing that just you need to be realistic about it. Uh, otherwise, there'll be disappointment. There's only you can't you know you can't with a magic wand say every car sold tomorrow in the United States can be electric car. And by the way, electric cars, 20% of them uh, are plastic. Right. So you're a global expert on these issues. How are European countries doing? Are there leaders there that the US could be looking to? I think if we look at the Biden program, it's very similar to what the EU is doing. Uh, the EU has a thing called the taxonomy. Uh, it has very, you know, things and trying to carry it further. Uh, President Macron has talked about limiting meat consumption. The German Greens have talked about uh, having a meatless day, uh, banning short-term flights, uh, controlling how people invest money. So I think uh, the Europeans are really at the forefront of this and defining the agenda. And I think if you look at the Biden program, it's very much in line with that. And obviously there's a strong dialogue going on and such a focus on Glasgow, which will be the next conference, uh, COP26, uh, to come out with more than the word. So a lot, of, a lot of action there. And so you'd say at one end of the spectrum, uh, Europe is the farthest advanced in terms of its policies and what it's trying to do. So you mentioned that. I've lost you on your sound again. Okay. Speak up. Francis, the sound. Can the engineers do anything? We'll see if I we can get some help. I know they're working on it. I'm hearing from our You're engineering back. team. You're back. I hear you. Okay. Let me rephrase my question. Apologies again, Dan. Um, you talked earlier on about the developing world. And um, I want to ask specifically about countries like India and Nigeria and a little bit more detail as, as they push to bring their people out of poverty. And is there any way for them to achieve both goals of greater energy efficiency and advancing the needs of people who are living in a far more troubled circumstances than those of us in wealthy countries? I think that's, um... You know, that's very much on the agenda. If you look at India's program, they have very aggressive targets for wind, for solar. They really want to push them. Obviously, then they get into issues of land and being able to do it. But they are largely, in terms of electricity, largely a coal country. And so I think it's just tougher for them. I've heard Indian government officials say we're not talking about an energy transition. We're talking about energy transitions, plural. That, in other words, getting people off of those waste products, getting them 
commercial energy, while at the same time uh, seeking to meet climate goals. And I think for them, their, their, their energy consumption, their CO2 greenhouse gas emissions are per person are a tiny fraction of ours. And so I think for, for leaders there, it's actually more challenging because they have a double mandate, which is to lift people, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty at the same time. So I, I sense, and I, you know, when I was doing this dialogue with the vice president of Nigeria, it sounded like almost hearing a new north-south division because their world is just that much more complicated in terms of what they have to deliver. Well, and let me we ask have, you a little bit. So as, as, as industrial countries, the United States, Western Europe, we have a lot of flexibility and a lot of money that can be spent. And we heard from the governor the kind of initiatives that you can do. But in India, where you don't have reliable electric power, how fast can you push people to electric vehicles? Let me ask you a couple of questions. I, I hope you can hear me about China. Um, China has pledged to reach these goals, the net zero goals by 2060. First, do you think that's a realistic goal in China's terms, that, that China will move in that direction at that speed? And secondly, is China a friend or foe to the United States in these broader net zero goals? Well, these are two different questions. Yeah. Uh, I, I think um, they bought themselves an extra 10 years. And uh, there's no question that the word has come down to, to do this. China has half of the world's uh, uh, solar, half of the world's wind, 45% of the car, electric cars in China, uh, in the world are in China. So I think they're determined to do that. I think it's again, very challenging for a country that gets not just 60% of its electricity, but 60% of its energy from coal. So they have a very big agenda but of course, they're able, but they have the resources. They're you know, a much richer country than India uh, to, to push there. So I think on that first one, I think they'll push in that direction. I think they see electric cars as a very important commercial opportunity because they were late to the game with uh, internal combustion engines. So not really competitive in the world market. I think they believe that they have their test market of China, that they can be competitive uh, with electric cars in the global market. And I think that's part of their strategy. And they have made a strong effort to position themselves in what they call new energies, uh, dominating position in lithium, a dominating position in cobalt. So, uh, uh, so I, I think, you know, but it's a big country and it's a, they have a lot, lot to do, but you know, there is a determination to get things done. Um, I think on climate is one of the few areas where the US and, uh, China kind of coalesced. Uh, it was last year that uh, President Xi Jinping made a speech at the UN where he talked about uh, 2060 net zero carbon target. Uh, and China wants to be seen as a leader in globalization. Uh, but you look at all the other areas uh, between US and China and the trends are much more worrying. It's much more uh, competitive. Uh, you look at trade, you look at technology, uh, you look at geographic issues, uh, there's, you know, the nature of the U.S. relationship with China has changed dramatically in the last six years from the end of the Obama administration to the beginning of the Biden administration. It's like 180 degrees different playbook. And I think that uh, uh, means that the kind of one of the few areas where they can come together is on climate. And I think uh, there would not have been the Paris Agreement in 2015 had it not been 
for President Xi and President Obama coming to an agreement in 2014. I, you mentioned the, the automobile industry in that earlier on in that last answer, and you wrote an op-ed in the uh, Wall Street Journal recently about the huge transformation in that industry. Where do you see the car industry 10 years from now? Well, I think 10 years from now, it will be in transition. Uh, I, you know, that uh, it's, it's one of the few industries whose business model did not change for over a century. It's changing now, and I called it, uh, and I, and I just, describe it at length in the new map, is, is, is auto tech. And it's three things coming together. Electric vehicles, which is a big push on. Secondly is uh, ride hailing. And thirdly is uh, self-driving cars, autonomous vehicles. And you put all those together, we might have, you know, not in 10 years, but in 20 years, a very different picture of uh, road transportation. It is interesting on cars that uh, we just heard from the governor about electric vehicles. Uh, transportation is a big source in the U.S. of uh, emissions. Uh, in the world, people would be surprised, cars only produce about 6% of uh, global ha uh, GHG CO2 emissions because the car population is so much smaller in, in other countries. But it is an industry, you know, GM has said by 2035, they're gonna, their aspiration is no gasoline cars. Uh, Volvo leapfrog and said, we'll do it in 2030. And, uh, I think between seeing the market, seeing where government policy is, uh, seeing where the economics are, technology, automakers are moving in that direction. But then that gets you back again to looking at the supply chains. You know, we see the problem of the supply chains today. I'm sure people watching this, many of them are having trouble getting things. They're taking much longer than normal. And so there is a, a big supply chain here. Everybody wants to go to electric cars at the same time. Dan, we've had a number of viewers who've written in with questions, and I'd like to ask one, which comes from Jonathan Grainoff in New York, and he writes in, what is the cost of not going to net zero? Uh, that's a very good question. I don't know uh, how you would measure it. I think the question is, how do you get there? Is carbon capture part of it? It's hard to see how you do this without carbon capture. Uh, without technological innovation. And I would say that the one thing to really emphasize, if you say, what really needs focus that will really make a difference? I think it's, you know, it's the R&D and then translating R&D uh, into, into technology. As to what the specific cost is, I, that's a, I think a philosophical question. I think the direction is clear, but it's, you know, what do you have to do to get there? And what are the challenges in, in being realistic about it? That brings us pretty much full circle to those challenges and being realistic about them as we go ahead. I do have one very quick last question. It's a big one, but I hope you can answer it quickly. The coronavirus has been an enormous disruptor. At the end of your book, you ask about whether it will increase or decrease energy use. Are you optimistic that this has moved, uh, created a transformative moment or not? I'm sorry, a big question uh, to answer. Well, big question. I think you can see that uh, the world is returning to normal and oil demand you know, if you look at that, it's back to where it was in uh, 2019 beforehand. I think big changes will be this electronic communication, what happens to travel, uh, what happens to how people do business and things like that. I think people will live in a more dispersed way. So we'll be more dependent upon electricity in ways that we hadn't expected. But right now, what we're seeing coming out of it is, a, you know, is the world, you know, the U.S. is probably going to grow around 7% this year. So. Uh, 
a real rebound uh, in the economy. But I think also, I think COVID-19 has shown how important technology is because the vaccines were decades to develop the technology. And then when we needed them, we had them and they could be applied in record time. And so you have to start in the technology and focus on that sooner, not later. Well, Daniel Jürgen, thank you so much. Thank you for sticking with us through those little hitches with the sound. And thank you for your optimism about technology. Thank you. Thank you also to our viewers for joining us. Uh, we have a great set of programs coming up tomorrow, starting at 9 a.m. with Jonathan Capehart, who will be here with First Look, followed at 10.30 by my colleague Jackie Alamany, who will be interviewing the bipartisan co-chairs of the Problem Solvers Caucus. That's Brian Fitzpatrick and Josh Gottheimers. So join us tomorrow, and you can always find more details at WashingtonPostLive.com. I'm Francis Deed Sellers, and thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.